The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. So, how'd you do with him? I sent him to his room. I know, I know, but I mean, he was grilling me. You really are a dad, aren't you? Not just a dad, my dad. You know, I, I could practically feel my hairline receding. <laughs> I had a sudden urge to complain about the Knicks. Yeah, it's easier being a kid. At least you know who the enemy is. No kidding. I just kept picturing Dad with his giant martini glass in his hand, lecturing me on the dangers of reefer. My father always gave me the in my day speech. I was going to do that. But in my day, I was smoking dope with you. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Remember, remember when you and Cheryl Castorini smoked that tie stick at the prom? And she was freaked out and, and thought the moon was attacking you? <laughs> God, that was a long time ago. Yeah. I can't remember much, but I was very happy. A long time. Where'd he get it? His friend Bobby. Kid does nice work. Not as good as I used to. Yeah, right. Okay, that's it. Let's just, let's just throw it away. Hold it, hold it. Here, smell it. Wizard remind you of? Days gone by. <laughs> Jeannie Dillon's basement. Yeah. Yeah, that old pool table, the orange fell, right? Santana on the yes. acre. <laughs> and your house? <laughs> Remember the sound? Boys, what are you doing in there? Studying, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd start pulling at that stuck window? And, and you would fan the smoke out with the closet door? <laughs> and spray right guard everywhere, right? I used to go through like three cans a month. My parents probably thought I had a glandular problem. And you would always worry what would happen if you died and they found your stash. Yeah. But your thing was always the cops, remember? Remember that time we spent 45 minutes hiding from the meter maid? Oh! <laughs> Man, those sure were some great times. Yeah. What are you doing? Let's fire it up. No, 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 no. Oh, come on, man. We haven't gotten high in, what, like 15 years? It'll be fun. All the cool kids are doing it. Okay, enough. Let's just throw it away. What? What? Are you chicken? Give me that. I'm warning you. What are you doing in that match? Don't you light that up in here. Do you hear me? You forgot to say, young man. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, June 11th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to our show today, where you can send us feedback at feedback at justratemedia.org. Go to our website at justratemedia.org, where you can uh, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, uh, subscribe on iTunes, and see our YouTube videos. Today is going to be a great uh, show today because we have an interesting guest. Andrew Bernstein is our guest today. He holds a PhD in philosophy from the Graduate School of the City University of New York. He has taught philosophy at the State University of New York at Purchase, Marist College, Hunter College, the State University of New York at New Paltz. He's an author. 
a speaker for the Ayn Rand Institute and advocate for Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. His articles have appeared in such papers as the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Times, and the San Francisco Chronicle. Now, on June 25th, our guest, Andrew Bernstein, will be in Toronto giving a talk titled The Case for Ending Drug Prohibition. The talk is sponsored by the Toronto Objectivist Committee and the Freedom Party of Ontario. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bernstein. Good to be here, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. It's our pleasure. Now, just to start off the show, I wonder if you could just um, answer a question, given that you uh, teach philosophy at, uh, and, and travel throughout the United States lecturing on philosophy. Given the extreme, what I would consider, left-wing, progressive, socialist nature of many of the students and faculty at most American universities today, do you find much opposition to your lectures on objectivism? Well, certainly the, uh, the faculty in the humanities departments tend to be very uh, Marxist, very very leftist and socialist. You know, I don't use the term progressive for those guys because I think, in fact, they, they have no, they don't, they don't deserve that. You know, the supporters of capitalism are the supporters of progress. The supporters of socialism are, are regressive. And I don't use the term liberals for that either because liberal. I'm a liberal. You know, supporter of liberty. Mm-hmm. They're not. But yeah, there's Marxist, socialists, without a doubt, amongst the the faculty, with a few exceptions. Um, and you know, so, and I and I notice now. Here's here's some good news, guys. Um, I notice now, uh, in 2015, you know, say roughly 30 odd years after I started teaching, that amongst the faculty members, every now and then I find a, a philosopher who's read Ayn Rand and who's positive about Ayn Rand and who's, and who's not your typical leftist uh, professor. So there's, there's, I think there's progress there. The students, um, certainly, certainly, a lot of, certainly a lot of them are leftist, but also, there's also a lot of them that really <laughs> that are apathetic, don't care one way or the other, uh, basically more pragmatic. You know, they're, they're concerned about having a, you know, having a career and a, and a, and a, a fulfilled life. So, so, I mean, in that way, I think that's very good. A lot of them are concerned about, you know, their own selfish uh, lives. Uh, some of them support capitalism, so it's mixed uh, amongst the students. So, so it's, not as, uh, it's not quite as grim, I think, as, as all that. You don't find a big pushback from some of your students when you, say, for example, talk about the benefits of capitalism and... Uh, Especially when most of the world is uh, turning to the left these days. Yeah, I. Um, but I don't proselytize in class. I, I include Ayn Rand in the in the reading list. Mm-hmm. And I think it's clear to my students where I stand. But I try to make the best case I can. Whether we're, whether we're discussing like in a, in a moral philosophy class, but we, whether we're discussing Plato, Aristotle, uh, Kant, Marx, you know, you know, Ayn Rand, whoever it is, uh, and. Um, we will we'll read Marx, Marx and Engels, you know, the Communist Manifesto, and I'll, I'll make the best case I can for Marxism and the class struggle, although I don't think there is any, there is any remotely strong case that you can make for it. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll teach Marx and Engels as objectively as I can. And then, you know, we'll, we'll read my book, Capitalism Unbound, and, uh, and in, in contrast, I'll make the case for capitalism which I, and individual rights, which I think is vastly stronger by many orders of magnitude. Uh, yeah, some of, the students, some of the students don't like it. Yeah, sure. Well, why then, if capitalism is so much, so much stronger, uh, Andrew, do, uh, 
do so many people appeal to Marxism and all of the, the leftist agenda? You know, given the successful track record yeah. of capitalism against the abysmal record of socialism, why would they continue to move to the left? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and, and of course, Ayn Rand's answer, answer to that was, uh, was at least in large part the, the moral code that we've been taught uh, for several thousand years, going back at least as far as as, as Plato, and w- which was certainly augmented by Christianity you know, and, and and religion, is that virtue lies in selfless service. That 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 is not virtuous to promote your own interest. Uh, that's that's the general general moral code. You know, the code of altruism, and you know, you know that 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 moral goodness lies in sacrificing oneself to others. Well. At the social at the social level, then others on the grand scale of society or, or the state. So that virtue lies in you know moral moral rectitude lies in, in in service to the state. Whereas egoism, the pursuit of your own self interest, is considered selfish and and immoral. Capitalism is grounded in some kind of egoistic. Uh, some kind of uh, capitalism is grounded in egoism and the, the pursuit of your of your own success, your own profit, your own your own happiness, your your own well being. So as long as um, Mankind's dominant moral code is. Oh, looks like we lost him there, Robert. <laughs> yeah, it looks like the the, uh, the call just ended there. Yeah, let's let's try and make that connection again. Yeah, I'll do that. He'll be back with us in a sec. But he's going to be speaking on the issue of drug prohibition uh, in Toronto at the University of Western or at the University of Toronto, and we'll be talking about that. Um, in the last quarter of the hour today. And of course, in Canada today, we have the issue where this issue is coming to the fore because of uh, the upcoming election. Now, if I understand, we've got him back on the line. He should be there. Are you there, Andrew? I'm back. I didn't, I didn't realize we, we lost the connection. I was still yeah, speaking. Just, oh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's sorry about that. Yeah, we just cut out. We just lost your signal. I wonder if you could perhaps just continue off where you were going. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know where... Where I got cut off, but uh, but but you, you you had raised a really important question about uh, given capitalism's successful track record and the abysmal failures of, of socialism, uh, especially a full socialism, you know, a real socialism like national socialism and communism. Uh, why the appeal to socialism and, and the animus towards capitalism? And I think Ayn Rand's answer is that's based in the moral code that what we we've been taught that self-sacrifice is virtue when self-interest is selfish and and, and evil. And as long as mankind holds a, a moral code of selfless service, then socialism is unbeatable, because socialism is the, that your life belongs to the state, and you provide selfless service to the state, whereas capitalism is based on the code of, of self-interest, that your, your life belongs to you, and morally it's right, it's right for you to pursue your own success, your own happiness, your own profit, your own well-being. So the, this, the underlying moral code that mankind holds that's responsible for the, <laughs> the move towards socialism. Isn't there a lot of confusion in that, even in identifying what is considered selfless altruism? I mean, a lot of people, or a lot of parents, for example, would say, well, we're sacrificing certain things that we're doing for our children to go to school or to pay for, for this, when really that's not um, a sacrifice in the sense. It's a value um, choice that they made. They made. They decided instead of buying that fancy, you know, car or or trailer or whatever they wanted, they they decided to put their money into a savings account for their kids' school. And they, but they refer to it as a sacrifice. Do you find a lot of that is being confused with what Ayn Rand meant? Yeah, there's uh, a lot of confusion on on this issue, and the 
the best people in the world, morally the best people, are rational egoists, whether they realize it or not. You know, like Moliere's character who spoke prose all of his life without realizing it, they're, uh, they're egoistic without, without even realizing it. And that's a, that's a, but they've been, taught, they've been taught a self-sacrifice code, and that's, that's what they know, that's what they've been, been taught. But that's a really good example, because the overwhelming majority of parents love their children, not all, uh, but, but most sure. parents love their children more than their bank account or what kind of a house they live in or everything. Their children are a much more important value to them, and properly so, than, than you know, have, living in a big house in the, in the suburbs or, or whatever. So, so you're right. They'll, they'll spend a lot of money on their child's education or their child's medical care or whatever it takes for the child to be well, uh, and they've been and they were doing it egoistically because it's it's in pursuit of their highest value or one of their highest values. But they've been taught that this is a that this is a sacrifice. Exactly. Uh, you, you know what's you know what's an interesting point on this? What's I that? think. <clears throat> excuse me. I think that the supporters of self-interest, or we we have as a in Western society, we have construed self-interest and 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 this is the egoists and the altruists, the supporters of self-interest and its enemies have often construed egoism way too narrowly, you know, as if the only thing that's in my self-interest is to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and don't get me wrong, working hard and earning wealth is a great thing, but it's hardly the only great thing in life, and it may not even be the greatest thing in life. Certainly bodily health, mental health, wisdom, close friendship, romantic love, family, uh, and family closeness, th- th- these can all be even greater values and more in my self-interest, even more in, 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 in individual self-interest, even than, than having a lot of money. So it, well, Ayn Rand is brilliant on this, that pursuing my self-interest involves the, the gaining of life-supporting values, of, of you know, values that actually do promote human life, given what human life is. So, so, so wisdom, for example, or health, or, or close friendship, or love. Uh, th- these are tremendously important values. A productive career, uh, definitely. Uh, these are all in an individual's rational self-interest, and that's why I say the best, the best people in, in, in the human race pursue those kind of values, and the best people in the human race, consequently, are rational egoists without even realizing that they are. Fascinating. going to take a quick bro- break now, and uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about a bit of how, how people go shopping for their philosophies and how they arrive at them uh, when we return from this. Hello, Doctor. Oh, hello, Kess. Doctor, what's happening in here? My personality improvement project. I've been interviewing the historical personality programs in our database. Socrates, Da Vinci, Lord Byron, T'Pau, Vulcan, Madame Curie, dozens of the greats. Then I select the character elements I find admirable and merge them into my own program. What are you hoping to gain? An improved bedside manner, a fresh perspective on diagnoses, more patience with my patients. enjoying each other. By that I mean to say, even their mutual glances must be free of all suggestion of carnality. Free of passion, one might as well be free of humanity. Do you not agree? I I think you both make valid points. 
one can pursue one's creative urges, spiritual urges, and physical urges, all have a place in a well-lived life. Thank you, Lord Byron. The classic romantic early 19th century argument. Yes, it seems quite fascinating to see... The classic or no? He is woefully misguided. Passion is meant for procreation. Anything further is contrary to divine intention. Really? It is said the angels themselves take pleasure in their bodies of light. And you should take a cold bath. In such cases, it is the finest preventative. I'll keep that in mind. Gee, if only everyone went shopping for their philosophy that way. Um, and how do people really come to hold and adopt the philosophies that they do in life? I mean, uh, people like yourself and myself and Robert, we discovered objectivism rather later in life. But I imagine up till then our philosophies were very much based on how our parents raised us and our, our immediate environment. And we kind of just absorbed it. We just didn't go to the library and, and shop for philosophers and put together some kind of a handbook of philosophy. What's been your experience with that? Well, I was very lucky that I had a high school teacher who was an objectivist, and he, he, was, he used to discuss Ayn Rand in, in class, and it hit me immediately that this made rational sense, that I just it just made sense to me. I was 16, and I went and got all of Ayn Rand's novels and, and read them, and I knew right away that this was the most important thing in the world, and that this was the philosophy that would uh, not only change my life immensely, for the better, but but could also and will in time also change the world uh, immensely for the better. Um, so I was I was lucky in in that regard, and I tried to I, I've tried to uh, do that for my own students to to introduce them to Ayn Rand, not dogmatize about it, but have them read Ayn Rand in the context of other great thinkers in the history of philosophy, and then then like Howard Rock in the Fountainhead use their own independent judgment to choose what, what makes sense to them and, and, what the, and what does not. But in answer to your, your question generally, uh, yeah, I think many people certainly raised in a religion uh, simply absorb it when they're young, and re- religion is, is a faith-based philosophy. It's an attempt to answer all the, the, uh, the philosophic questions of human life. Other, other kids go to the universities where most of the professors, of course, are pushing basically leftist philosophy at them derived from german philosophy from the uh the the influential german thinkers immanuel kant uh, george wilhelm friedrich Hegel, and karl marx and they become uh you know in that that modernist uh, leftist uh altruist morality uh, uh, but, but, uh, but of course they, they pick all this up mostly from their environment you know i don't know too many people actually read kant and wouldn't know that they were following his philosophy this is how does one make people aware of these things because kant probably doesn't mean much to most the average person in the street you can tell them all you want that you know this is the philosophy you're following and he's got it wrong and the person can't even relate to you on that level how does one get around that level of conversation when you've got, you know, you're trying to move a whole culture in a certain direction, and that culture is this this big melting pot of different ideas all all cooking together, you know, to to discern. Well, I, I think we need to be overwhelmingly and immensely positive, and mm. and that is present the present the true ideas rather than polemicize. That is, you know, argue against the the false ones. Um, so I have people. 
as, as you know, my students read Ayn Rand in, in the classes. When when I talk to people, I, I focus on on the positives, on the role of reason, you know, of observation-based reason in, in human life, on on the, the virtues of of a proper and healthy egoism in pursuing you know life-promoting values by means of your own effort, on the necessity of you know, the freedom of man's mind, on the principle of individual rights and and the virtues of freedom. I focus on you know, on the positives, and almost never discuss, you know, Kant, Hegel, Kant, Hegel, and Marx. That comes up very rarely, only with people who are really, really interested in, in philosophy. But generally, generally, I focus on the positive, and I think, and I think, I, t- to me, I, in my own mind, whether I'm writing or, or lecturing or speaking, I try to follow what I think of as the 95-5 principle. And the, the 95-5 principle is that even, even if I'm arguing against, say, socialism, uh, 90, at least 95% of my presentation is going to be positive. It's going to be on, on what's true, what's right, the virtues of capitalism, the virtues of individual rights, and at most maybe 5% on the, on the evils of socialism, even in the context where I'm arguing against socialism. At least 95% of my presentation is going to be about what's true, not, and, and only marginally about what's false. I wonder if we can switch gears here for a little moment. And I understand you're qu- you're quite prolific, and you've written a number of books. And I understand you've also written on open immigration, of which um, I think you are uh, an advocate. And uh, there was a recent discussion by Yaron Brook of the Ayn Rand Institute and Leonard Peikoff on that very topic, where Brook seemed to share your view, while Dr. Peikoff would like to see limited immigration, since it seems to be a nefarious way for the socialist government of the U.S. to stack the voting deck in their favor. Now, your thoughts on that argument against open immigration by Peikoff? Well, there's nobody... There's nobody alive in the in the world that I respect as much as Leonard Peikoff for all of the tremendous work he's done in mm-hmm. in studying Ayn Rand's philosophy and, and in presenting it. You know, and he's 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 my along with Ayn Rand, he's my my leading uh, teacher. But I disagree with him on you know, respectfully disagree with him on on this issue. Um, first of all, as as a as a purely factual point, um, uh, the the the. the the problems of the welfare state are overwhelmingly a problem of native-born Americans, not of immigrants. Immigrants generally have a very, very strong work ethic. Uh, they, they, they always have, and they still do. The labor force participation rates show that that low-skilled Hispanic workers are, are amongst the you know society's hardest workers. So I think that's that's that's. Uh, factually factually mistaken but the, the the key point here is that the welfare state needs to be phased out phased out uh, uh, fully obliterated in time regardless of our policy on on immigration it's a mistake to conflate those those two issues and, and once the welfare state is ended then of course uh, then all the more it's only the most hard-working and honest people who are going to be attracted to come to a country where you have every right to pursue your own happiness and to work hard and achieve success, and there's not going to be uh, any welfare state for you to be on or for you to politically support. So I think it's a mistake to conflate uh, questions of the welfare state and, and people either being being on welfare or politically supporting the welfare state with uh, with the question of, of open immigration. Seems like a vicious circle, though, doesn't it? Um, if you're bringing in people who seem to rely, and, and I don't know the stats on this or anything, but I'm just taking Dr. Peikoff's uh, impressions about it, uh, a group of people who would vote more to the left, more for this welfare state. How do you get rid of the welfare state so that you can uh, actually have open immigration? 
Well, I'm not convinced that, first of all, that these hard-working immigrants... Oh, dear, do we lose them again? That they can't be... Oh, no, there you know, that their minds can't be reached by the arguments, by Ayn Rand's arguments for, for freedom. In fact, I think the reason so many, so many immigrants came to this country and still come to this country is because they seek freedom. Uh, to, they seek to get away from mm-hmm. statism and, you know, and, and governments uh, dominating their lives. So I think many of them would be very receptive to Ayn Rand's arguments. I speak in the high schools in, the, in New York City often. I was just there uh, a week or so ago, and almost all the students in the class were black, Latino, etc. They'd read Ayn Rand with one of their teachers. They, they loved it. I think they were, you know, they, they were very receptive uh, to these ideas. But the case, but, but the main point here is the case against the welfare state is on moral ground. That, that you're robbing productive people, you're, you're, you're helping to seduce uh, people, what does Walter Williams call, you know, be, being seduced onto the dole by, by Washington's welfare pimps. Uh, you're, 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 you're supporting the, the, the worst, most irrational indolent premises uh, of individuals. The welfare state is, is a disaster. But listen, we're going to go to a break right now, and we're going to return right after our bottom of the hour break, and we're going to carry on our conversation with Dr. Andrew Bernstein. Who's on the line, Ross? We have Mitch on line three. He's having trouble with his neighbors. Hello, Mitch. Make that head trouble. This idiot next door had his leaf blower going at 7 a.m. again. Oh, that's very inconsiderate. Yeah, I'll say. That's why I decided to give him an etiquette lesson. I grabbed that leaf blower and smashed it against a tree. (laughs) Mitch, I must say I'm stunned. I can't imagine a more extreme response to such a minor infraction. So I stuck into his backyard and shoved a whole pound of rotten shrimp into his air conditioner. Come on, Summer. Hey, he asked for it. So I put 100 scorpions in a FedEx package. Look, I'm, I'm sorry, but no, no matter how provoked you may have been, there is no earthly justification for setting someone's lawn on fire. But she doesn't curb her dog. Oh. You don't take any guff. Why should I? Rochelle, all of you, look, don't you realize that your behavior is it's just a bit extreme? I just played a, a minor bit of force in order to just make a point. But what, I didn't go around smashing windows or torching lawns. God, where does it end? Are you saying that what I did was wrong? Of course I am. But what you did was okay. No, no. I've come to think of it, what I did was just as wrong. I mean, who am I to draw the line at the acceptable level of force? Because the next person moves a little farther, and the next person a little farther still, until we finally end up with scorpions flying through the mail like Christmas bunt cakes. (laughs) What we must all agree to do is to resolve our differences with discussion and reason. As a matter of fact, I'm going to call the gentleman that I manhandled and, and apologize to him for not having worked out our dispute in in the right way in the first place, through words. The key here is restraint. And I do hope you'll follow my lead, Becky with the nail gun.
Wyatt. Who the hell are you? My name is John Galt. I live in a place we call Atlantis. And I think you'd fit in there. It's a place where heroes live, and where those who want to be heroes live. The government we have there respects each of us as individuals and as producers. Actually, beyond a few courthouses, there's not much of a government at all. Bottom line, Mr. Wyatt. If you're weary of a government that refuses to limit its power over you, and if you're ready at this moment to claim the moral right to your own life, then we should leave. And I'll take you there. I'll take you to Atlantis. Hello and welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. We're on the line with Dr. Andrew Bernstein in New York. Can you hear us, Dr. Bernstein? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. That's great. Thank you. Having a bit of trouble there with the phones. That was a little clip from um, Atlas Shrugged Movie. Now, I I felt a little trepidatious of actually playing that one because some objectivists sort of object to that particular movie. Um, Did you have a chance to see it, and what are your thoughts on it? I saw the first two installments. I didn't get to see the, the third I uh, I hate to criticize it because you know I respect uh, John Aguilaro, the the producer, and I and I and I like him. But I I, I thought the movie let's let's just say I thought the movie could have been a lot better. Yeah, from my impression, it it fell flat. It did not, um, unfortunately, do the uh, huge tome that is Atlas Shrugged justice. And uh, you know, like you say, you want to give people their due to try to bring out uh, the word of Ayn Rand to a broader audience, but. Um, I don't know that um, it was successful in doing that. Yeah, that's a, that's I, a I, tough I movie. I think, I think it introduced some people to the book, and, and probably some people read the book because of that movie. So in that way, it was a good thing. Mm. I understand you've written the Cliff's Notes for um, not only um, the Fountainhead, uh, Atlas Shrugged as well, I understand. And yeah, for Anthem, Atlas Shrugged, and the Fountainhead, yes. Now, th- Cliff Notes, those are usually notes that accompany study on these books that are taught in schools. Is that correct? Yes, generally, that's and, correct. And so can I assume then that these books are being taught more widely than I expect or expected in, in the schools across the nation? Because I'll tell you, I never ran into any of these books when I was in school, not in a, not in, not on the curriculum in any way. Yeah, well, I think that's part of the good news in the past 15 or 20 years. I, I think you know, the Ayn Rand <coughs> Ryan Institute has high school and now college essay contests on Ayn Rand's novels, and <clears throat> they present uh, free to any teachers in in the United States or Canada copies of Ayn Rand's novels for the, for their class. So I think those those two things those those two things have greatly encouraged uh, high school teachers to to use Ayn Rand's books in the classroom. So so yes, I think you are absolutely absolutely correct. Big part of the good news is how many more students. How many more students are reading, are getting a chance to read Ayn Rand's novels in their high school English classes uh, in the last 15 or 20 years? It's a very, being introduced to Ayn Rand that way is a very good thing. Now, another, another issue, we're trying to touch upon a number of issues before we get to our final uh, issue of, of course, legalizing drugs that we're going to be talking about in the final quarter. Another one that interests us is, is your reaction to Obamacare. We're, we're, we're sitting here in the great white north where we've lived with socialized medicine for many years. And died with it. And, and yes. <laughs> but, of course, the U.S. has had Medicare for, for much longer than Obamacare. What, what has been the reaction, as you've seen, and what do you see as the, the, if there are any pluses of this and the pitfalls of it? Well, I don't see. I, I, I definitely think 
that Ob- Obamacare is uh, is is intended and, and is leading the United States towards socialized medicine, similar to that in Canada and Britain and, and other and other countries, many other countries are, are around the world. I don't see any positives to it. When the government takes over any field, of course, that that's um, it always leads to leads to pernicious results. The obvious problem with uh, 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 with socialized medicine is the waiting list that you you have to to, to, to see a doctor. The the the, the free on demand bankrupts the system. They can't afford to train specialists. God forbid somebody needs to see a cardiologist or an oncologist, and then you wait online for God knows how long, months or years, in some cases before you get to see a specialist. People die waiting. Uh, to see it, I, I saw uh, this this quote from a Swedish cardiologist who said that he, he thought he I don't remember the exact number, but something like thousands of Swedes die annually from treatable heart conditions because they can't get in to see a cardiologist. So, furthermore, that the, 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 the deeper level, of course, once once the government uh, takes over takes over a field, it crushes independent independent thinking. You, you notice. Great Britain used to be one of the world leaders in medical advances, and now there's fewer, if any, medical advances that come out of Britain. Most medical advances and new pharmaceuticals are developed in the United States now, so God forbid you know, that we move towards socialized medicine. You so know, that's my take on Obamacare. You know, I, I, my experience has been you can talk about the evils of socialized medicine as much as you want to some people, and I'll tell you, as you talk to the average Canadian, socialized medicine is almost the identity of this country and what separates us from every other nation in the world, that type of thing. Except it's, Cuba. It's almost, it's, almost like a, a, um, it's almost like a religion, even if it doesn't make sense on the end of it. This, this benefit, this idea of getting, quote, something for nothing, seems to overwhelm all those other considerations. Is, is that a form of misdirected uh, self-interest, selfishness, if you want to put it that way? Yeah, I, I think, you know, in, in part, it's, it's, it's the legacy of Marxism, the influence of Marxism, you know, that we're, we're, the, the rich, you know, the rich have the obligation to pay for, for the poor, and, and so, they, you know, the, the relatively poor or the middle class, people who are, people who are poor relative to the, to the millionaires and billionaires, they then, in effect, get a free ride, which they, which they think is, uh, is, is morally right. And, um, and very and very often they don't you know they they like they like the free they like they like the free on demand I know it's uh, it's it's disturbing and and they and uh, and of course they have no I think critical here is they have no conception uh, of the principle of individual rights they have no conception of how free market works uh, both morally and practically to promote uh, outstanding medical care they get the benefits of for, for example they they go to the the doctor for free prescribes them medications. Uh, it helps them when their children get better. They have no conception that those medications very often are developed uh, in the United States or in you know by pharmaceutical companies in the in the freer countries where the government has less control of, of the of the medical system. Uh, you know, and and if the whole world moves towards socialism, I mean, I mean, real socialism, what's going to happen to medical care? It's going to absolutely collapse. Uh, and, you know, like in Cuba, where leftists extol the Cuban medical system, but the truth is, if 
Greys, some Cuba who are MDs, that, you know, the, the, the hospitals, forget, forget pharmaceuticals, the hospitals don't have, you know, clean towels or sheets, you know, or, or for, 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 for their patients. So the whole, whole world moves towards socialism, the, the tremendous, the terrible collapse in medical care. They don't, they don't see it. They just, they don't think in, they don't think in these terms about the, they, they have no idea of the great virtues of freedom and, and the horrors of, of government control over our life. It's interesting because, you know, a year ago um, we heard from Rita Parnabas, who, who spoke at the same venue you'll be speaking at in two weeks, uh, from the Ayn Rand Institute, and she pointed out how a famous heart surgeon in India who had turned businessman in order to figure out how to make treating cardiac disease more affordable put together a business, and apparently he's making a lot of money at it, and yet his pursuit of profit led him, according to her, to be able to offer an equally good heart surgery for $1,500 U.S., as would be in the Cleveland, Ohio Clinic, where the same surgery cost $106,000. And is that, are doctors in the States, do they have a problem, too, with regulation on how much profit they can make? Is profit part of the answer? Because here in Canada, I don't know that our doctors are considered profit makers as such. Yeah, well, that, that's a that of course is is an interesting question, and, and I think um, in a, in a fully in a fully free society, which we which we should have, of course, doctors doctors are in competition with uh, with with one another. That 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 in and of itself, is, if we had a free society, would help keep prices down. But the the the, the extraordinary expense. In, in the American medical system is, is, is again, it's based on, America's, the United States is a mixed economy. It's not uh, a ca- capitalist society. Hasn't, that's a misconception that many people have. Uh, it hasn't been a, a capitalist society going back at least as far as FDR and the New Deal, if not further. Uh, and so, you ask the question, if we, ask, if we raise the question, well, what, what, what part of the American economy, the capitalist part or the socialist part, is responsible for the exorbitant expenses? The socialist part. The government interference in the, in, in the economy, the Medicare, the Medicaid, the, the way it gives, gives tax breaks to corporations to pay uh, health insurance for, for its employees, uh, doesn't allow them to have the same tax break on, on, on just on paying salary, the increased salary to the employees and eliminating uh, health care benefits. So we have, well, we have in the United States the third-party payer system, and it's always easier to spend somebody else's money than your own. So the, 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 uh, the demand for medical services is greatly stimulated without any corresponding stimulus in the supply, and right there, bang, that's the reason for the tremendous expense. The way to get, get rid of that is get the government out of the, out of the medical field, have people pay their own medical uh, expenses, uh, and you're going to see much less demand for medical care, and you'll see the prices come way down, again, like it was prior to World War II, before the government got involved in the medical care, when doctors used to make house calls and they charge you three or five dollars, you know, uh, for a visit, that's because that was that was before the government stimulated demand without any corresponding increase in the supply of medical care. There's the there's the economic reason for why medical care in the United States is so expensive. That's not the way it is on a free market. That case of the Indian physician is a good example. Excellent. Well, I think it's about time now that we segue our discussion from general Medicare and capitalism and wealth creation to the subject that that will be the focus of your talk in Toronto two weeks from today. You're thinking the same as I, Rashid. I will. Captain, an island, if it exists here, 
And it can only be one place. Lemuria. Well, there you have it. We seek Lemuria. We wager our skill against that. And for rich reward, find this island and a handsome prize awaits every man. Are you with me? Aye. To Lemuria. And about it to boot. Aye. Even if it be into the jaws of hell itself. We cannot be bought, Captain. Only with money. <laughs> then be warned. We can afford no laggards on this voyage. Every man must carry his own weight and more. Arun, I'll put you on watch. On watch? All you have to do is sit down and keep a sharp lookout. Sit down and look. Fine. You pace the deck like a caged beast. For one who enjoys the hashish, you should be more at peace. During the war on drugs, the U.S. dropped a bong on LSD Day. $150 question, originally prompted by a heroin epidemic. What 1970s U.S. president was the first to pass the war on drugs? Jimmy. Gerald Ford. No. Who was Gerald Ford? <laughs> Johnson. Johnson? No, not Johnson. Juggies? Yes. Reagan? No, no, no. It was my eight. boss, Mr. Nixon. Oh, Nixon. oh. Okay, $50 toss-ups. The Thunder, you got that right. By consolidating drug organizations under the Department of Justice, Nixon created what agency in 1973? Jimmy. The DEA. Very good. Thank you. Very good. Hello, we're back with Dr. Bernstein on the phone. You're in Toronto in two weeks today. The case for ending drug prohibition will be your talk. And um, it'll be held at the University of Toronto in the Wahlberg Memorial Building, Room 116. That'll be on 200 College Street. Admission is free, although they do ask for a donation at the door. That will be gratefully accepted. It's put on by the Toronto Objectivist Committee and the Freedom Party of Ontario. Now, getting into the discussion on the, uh, the war on drugs, and of course, it's abysmal failure. Um, I do have a question, maybe by way of devil's advocate, I don't know, but... Um, while the case for ending drug prohibition for all drugs is quite reasonable and one that uh, I think Bob and I would totally agree with, what are your thoughts on the ethics of taking potentially damaging drugs for recreational purposes? Well, I think I certainly, uh, I think any rational human being applauds the people risking their lives on, you know, for these toxic drugs. And I think, I think we need to take a very, very, very strong stance in the war against drugs. So I absolutely support mm -hmm. the war on drugs, but not in this, not in the form of a legal prohibition. Legal prohibition, of course, violates the right of, of individuals in a free society who are consenting adults to choose whether or not they'll ingest this substance uh, or, or that. The war on drugs needs to completely tran be transformed from a political legal battle into a moral, philosophic, uh, educational battle. And we need to, and the first step in a proper war on drugs is for all the people who are concerned with this terrible problem in society, the first and best and most fundamental thing that we could do is to not take drugs. 
and then you're living a clean life and pursuing rational life-promoting values in education in a career that we love, career education in a field we love, career in a field we love, you know, close friends that we could trust with our lives, romantic love, children, travel, sports, entertainment, the arts, fill our lives with rational values, then, since we're walking the walk, now we could talk the talk, and we could tell anybody who will listen, and even the people who won't listen, talk to our children, our students, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, about the virtues of, of clean living and filling your life with rational values, and all these things that are open to you in a free or semi-free society, and you want to risk all of this for a few moments of a drug-induced high? Are you crazy, stupid, or both? You know, and, and, and we, we become exemplars, Ben. We become role models. Now, I understand for, that... For people. This is the way to fight a rational, morally proper war on drugs, and if we do so, we will save mm -hmm. vastly more lives than the failed legal uh, war, war on drugs ever did or, or, or ever will. Now, I understand that even Ayn Rand herself enjoyed a nice um, cocktail now and then. Um, certainly you wouldn't begrudge people the occasional use of a stimulant or uh, even a hallucinogenic. Well, you know, I think I, I, don't, I don't drink, I don't, I don't use any drugs, so, so that's, not, that's not part of my life. Mm -hmm. But people make a judgment call on, uh, on the tox based on, you know, rational people make a judgment call based on the toxicity involved. So if you drink alcohol on occasion or smoke marijuana on occasion, from what I understand biologically, that's not particularly harmful to anybody. But for somebody you know, who wants to use cocaine or, uh, you know, heroin or some uh, drug like that that's highly toxic, you know, you can risk, risk your life just by, by one usage. So well, I think uh, rational people make a judgment call based on the fact and that some, some drugs are relative. Some drugs are much more innocuous, mm -hmm. much less toxic than others. So, so I, I wouldn't tell people not to enjoy, you know, uh, marijuana on occasion or uh, uh, alcohol alcohol on occasion, you know, in, in moderation, don't drink and drive. Uh, but but anybody, anybody who listens to me, I would tell them to never use cocaine or heroin or, you know, or mask or stuff like that, which is just tremendously toxic and, and very, very hazardous to your, to, and of course, to your very life. Having it against the law only makes it that much more um, enticing for some and more expensive so that they actually have to commit crimes to go out and supply, supply their habits, correct? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's much sexier when it's uh, when it's illegal. I, I think it is it is more enticing. And certainly, I think that as as a, you know, as a practical point, gentlemen, I think the single thing in in the United States, the single thing that will most greatly lower the homicide rate in this country is to legalize drugs, uh, and probably in a number uh, of countries. There's so much, you know, murder, in, and not just gangs killing each other, your know, thugs killing other thugs, but most of these shootouts take place in urban areas, and innocent people get caught in the crossfire. God knows how many innocent people are killed in the, in, in the drug wars. And one of the practical benefits of legalizing drugs, of course, is same thing, uh, you know, as when, as when Prohibition was ended in 1933, and what, what happens then is you take the alcohol trafficking, in this case the drug trafficking, out of the hands of these murderous gangsters, 
and you put it in the hands of, of legitimate businessmen. Uh, you can walk into a liquor store and buy liquor, and uh, in a free society, you walk into a non-pharmaceutical drug store and buy your, buy your recreational drugs, and you remediate the, the, the terrible violence and the, the hideously high homicide rate that, that swirls around the drug trafficking in the hands of these vile gangsters. You know, although legalizing drugs would clearly be beneficial to those, especially unjustly imprisoned solely for the use or possession of a prohibited... Again, I for some reason, I, I can't hear you. Uh-oh. Jeez, <laughs> um, I don't know what to do about that. Um, you think the phone might work? <laughs> Try just your just repeat the question. Some, I'm hearing something now. Oh. Just repeat the question. Okay, though. we're just wondering if, if by legalizing drugs, whether consumers, regular consumers, would actually be better off because the real control is of the market, of the trade of the drugs. And here in Canada, everything's done monopoly style. And so instead of someone getting busted for doing a, a, an illicit subsidy, he's going to get busted for, for violating someone's trade. Uh, and that might even be a worse penalty than he's facing under prohibition. Is that a possibility? I don't know. I'm not. Uh, I'm, this is one of the disadvantages of, of bringing in a guy from the United States to speak in in Canada. I'm not, I'm not familiar with with the laws and 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 the, and the regulations specifically in, in Canada. So, so, well, so well, here in Canada, know. for example, even even beer and alcohol, or in Ontario especially, are are regulated and priced and controlled by the government entirely, and they're way way overpriced. I'll give you an example, uh, Andrew, about uh, how backwards this country is regarding its drug laws. If you grow seven or more pot plants, and I believe the number is seven, I could be mistaken on that, the penalty for getting caught doing that is worse than for raping a child. You will spend more time in prison. That's how backward we are. That's, uh, yeah, that's hideously immoral and, and, and unjust. You know, raping a child is obviously a, a terrible violation of, of a child's rights, and is a is a, is a serious crime. Whereas growing marijuana plants is, you know, there's no there's no victims, there's there's no initiation of force or fraud against an innocent person. It's completely uh, non-criminal in any objective sense. That's yeah, that's that is that is really unjust. That is that is a horror. Wow, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah that was just recently uh, yeah. implemented a couple of years ago. We did a show on it. Uh, conservative government. Uh, implemented that those those penalties. Now we have an election. Yeah, that's, oh, sorry, we have we that, have a, that's a real violation of an individual's rights. That's, mm-hmm. that's terrible. Absolutely, we have a federal election coming up here in Canada soon, and the issue of legalizing marijuana has been placed on the ballot thanks to Justin Trudeau, leader of the Liberal Party here. And already, I've been hearing some Conservative Party ads against Trudeau reacting to his pot policy with, quote, sounds like he has some growing up to do. That's growing up, not growing. <laughs> and uh, right. it sounds to me like the Conservative Party has some growing up to do, especially with regard to its drug policies. Um, not that I agree with Trudeau on everything, but that's one thing he's got right. And here's the Conservatives coming out saying that he's got a lot of growing up to do. It, you know, it's almost as if the position of legalizing anything is being... Um, Consider it a juvenile idea, like a, like it's totally off the wall. Is, are you are you getting that same kind of reaction? Yeah, yes, I you know I think again, it's a it's a failure on the part of many people to, to either understand the principle of individual rights and or to, and or to support it. But if we if we do understand the the, the principle, yeah, you know, I had a student in class. This was a young 
this was a, a young kid, you know, saying to me, but you, but if when, when I was discussing all the virtues of drug legalization, and she said to me, but if we just let people do whatever whatever they feel like, or we let people take whatever drugs they want, such and such and such, well, your bad things will happen. And I said, I don't believe in letting people do whatever they want or in, in taking whatever drugs they want. And she said, you don't? I said, no. So I believe in, in protecting the, the rights of individuals to uh, you know, to take uh, whatever, you know, of consenting adults. I, I believe in protecting the rights of individuals to do that, not letting people do to do, do anything. The government doesn't have the moral authority to let people do things or to not let people do things. The government exists to protect the rights of individuals to do as they will as long as they're not criminals, as long as they're not initiating force or fraud. So I think we need to really stress the broader principle here, that the inalienable right of an individual to his or her own life includes the right to irrationally risk by using uh, toxic drugs. And you know, you know what's interesting? Um, truth is often often paradoxical. You know, can, can we reach the Far East by sailing west? Yes, we can. Can, can we fight a more effective, morally upright, and, and practically effective war on drugs by legalizing drugs? Yes. Legalizing drugs is part of a proper war on drugs. It's, it's a paradoxical point. I'm going to speak on this in Toronto in a couple of weeks. And that sounds like a good place to end the show today, Dr. Bernstein. So your talk in Toronto will be the case for ending drug prohibition. It's in room 116 of the Wahlberg Memorial Building, 200 College Street, and the University of Toronto. Again, the admission is free. I hope you're going to be bringing lots of your copies of your many books that you've written about Ayn Rand, Objectivism, and uh, various topics. And uh, we'll see you there. Well, as many as I could could carry on the the plane, (laughs) like I could sign and, and sell and, and make a profit. But again, you know, th- thanks for having me on. I want to stress that I think the novelty, the, the, the new point in this talk that I'm, that, I'm going to, that I'm going to make is that legalizing drugs is a necessary step in fighting a morally upright and practically effective war on drugs. So that, that's, that's, that's the theme of, of my talk. You'll have no argument here. Thank you again, Dr. Bernstein. Thanks again, gentlemen. Have a great day. Thank you. Take care. And that's it for another week for us. Join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And what's with those cigarette manufacturers? They're forced to put new stern warning labels on the cigarette packs. And now I read that in order to get around that, they've been putting secret messages, subliminal messages, into the warning labels to get smokers to ignore them and smoke more. Well, when I read that, I thought, that's a lot of bull. That can't be true. But then the other day, I had a pack of smokes in my hand, so I actually read the warning label. Well, the words I read were something like, cigarettes cause heart disease, and stroke. But what I heard in my head was, you know, if you peel the foil off the paper, you can hide your hash in it.